Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's a brand new year. And what better time to get going with that online store you've been thinking of? Those, I was there when Arsenal actually scored a goal t-shirts would fly off the shelves right now. And to get yourself up and running, you need Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way through to the did we hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and sell more with less effort with thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Sign up for a $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash arsblog, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash arsblog now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash arsblog. Hello and welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. Summertime is well and truly upon us. Well, I guess for some people it is. In this part of the world, we've reverted to the kind of summer we've always had, which is, uh, I guess the word to use is changeable. You see, last summer at this point, we were beginning something of a, a heat wave and it was fucking, it was great. It was fucking great. And I know, I realize that for Ireland to have weeks, in fact, months of temperatures in the mid to high 20s and no rain and sunshine every day and warm air, I know that's not normal. You don't have to tell me that's not normal. It should be really concerning as we we come to terms with what climate change is going to do and how it's going to affect all of our lives, especially the people who, you know, are are going to have to live underwater and stuff like that. It's it's awful, but it was really good. It was really nice, and I kind of miss it. So we're not getting that kind of a summer just yet. Hopefully where you are, the weather is nice and within the seasonal norms of what it should be. Maybe, maybe, maybe we'll get it. We'll get a bit of sunshine in this country between now and, well, the start of the new season slash close of the transfer window. Yes, the transfer window, silly season. It is upon us. It is absolutely well and truly upon us. We've seen all the stories this week already. We're only, we're only like a few days after the end of the Europa League final and it's gone full tilt. It's like not to 60 in 0.00 of a second. There's no easy into this. There's no taking it slowly and building. There's no dipping your toe in the water and just seeing how it goes. No, 
No, no, no, no, no. We're not having any of that this year. We are just going full on, full throttle into all the craziness straight away. Um, the amount of players we have been linked with is amazing already. We're going to go through some of those names between uh, now and the end of the show as we talk transfers uh, with our guests in a few minutes' time. And, of course, all the players who are, you know, tipped to leave the club. Um, there have been links with, you know, our strikers going to China and to Barcelona. I mean, it's it's so crazy. There's even talk about Kalasinac going to Barcelona. That's how mental it is uh, right at this moment in time. Of course, we had the story during the week, didn't we, about Granit Xhaka. Apparently, uh, a £55 million move to Inter Milan. Oh my goodness, Granit Xhaka being sold for £55 million. Who wouldn't turn that down? With all due respect to the guy, I think he's, you know, a pretty decent player, but just after three seasons, the errors, the mistakes, the brain farts. If someone offered you £55 million for him, uh, how would I liken this? It's like somebody ringing on your door and saying, I will give you £100,000 for that 2004 Toyota Corolla out there. I mean, you'd be mad to turn that down, wouldn't you? But of course, nobody is going to do that. And the story was, of course, complete and utter bollocks. The story, uh, as it came out, was that some guy who claimed to be Xhaka's cousin posted this uh, message on Facebook or wherever the hell he posted it. And he said, I'm Xhaka's cousin. It's true. He's leaving. Inter are going to pay 55 million pounds. Immediately, all the people who want to go first with transfer news on Twitter are there saying, Xhaka, 55 million pounds to Inter Milan. His cousin is saying so. I mean, how could it be untrue? It's his cousin. Cousins don't lie. They certainly wouldn't tell an untruth about their 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 family member. What kind of a monster would you have to be to carry out an act so so egregious that preyed on the vulnerabilities of others? You'd have to be some kind of heartless psychopath to say something like that. And you just stop and you go, at what point did critical thinking go out the window so completely at what point does the fact that it's simply on the internet lend credence to information and i know this doesn't just apply to football either i know that this could be relevant to many things that have affected all of our lives in recent times but come on come on And then, what, within 24 hours, the guys on Twitter going, yeah, I made the whole thing up, you know. Just, you know, invented the whole thing, put some words on a screen. I went internet fishing and all the little fishies bit. I think we're in for one hell of a summer in terms of transfer news. Because the thing about it is, at the back of it all, is that we can sort of see potential in every single transfer rumor that exists because so many players could go we need so many to come in anything that goes out there that looks even vaguely um credible is going to get jumped on and is it just me or has this subsection of twitter opened up where uh, italian journalists are, are set up as some kind of like transfer gurus that these stories tend to emerge from these guys like, you know, Di Marzio or Schilacci or Don Wario or whoever the fuck. I don't know what's going on. All I know, folks, is that we, over on Arsblog News, will do a roundup of the transfer stories and we have got our patented poo-ometer in full operation. We've run the safety test. There has been no Chernobyl-esque meltdown. 
and it is going to be in full swing throughout the summer. Just to give you an idea of how it works, a transfer rumor is graded from one poo to ten poos. Ten poos is a big load of sloppy nonsense that you should avoid. One poo is a completely solid rumor. I don't know what you do with the rumor um, when it's in that form, but that is how we're going to grade uh, transfer stories throughout the summer over on Arsplug News. And of course, we'll be chatting about them on the podcast, I'm sure, uh, over the course of the summer as well. Right Let's get on with the show. And we're going to talk transfers uh, with our guests in a couple of moments' time. But earlier this week, my first guest wrote a very, very interesting column for Ars Blog, a tactical look at Unai Emery's season. Uh, he's written about Unai Emery and his tactical approach throughout the campaign. Uh, so first up, Lewis Ambrose. Hi, Lewis. Hi, Andrew. And also with me, you might know him from the Arsenal Vision podcast. You can block him on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. It's Elliot. Hi, Elliot. Hey, Andrew. How are you? I'm good. I'm going to start with Lewis, though, so he can sit there quietly like you make Clive do uh, in the initial stages of your, of your podcast. I, I, I'm sure you mean that I can interrupt you both at, at every opportunity. Absolutely. And I, I, I don't have any doubt that that's what's going to happen. But uh, okay, I, want to talk to, I want to talk to Lewis first because you wrote this article, Lewis, about... Unai Emery and his tactics throughout the course of this season. And I think um, when we look back to the beginning of, of his reign, if you like, we were all very enthused with a manager who had what was considered a, a tactically flexible approach, not as dogmatic as Arsene Wenger, who, you know, throughout most of his Arsenal career was wedded to one or two systems. It developed, of course, over time as he moved away from the from the four four two to uh, to what came next. But Emery was different, a breath of fresh air, somebody who could adapt his tactics on a game by game basis, and that seemed to be something that everybody was was very keen to to buy into. The issue that we had over the season was that we, we felt like we were lacking a kind of identity to our football and the way that we wanted to play. But initially, it really did seem as if Emery was trying to build something of a platform from which he could implement these different tactical variations. And that was a sort of a, a 4 2 three, one formation, which, you know, as we know, over the season changed here and there. Can you, I mean thinking about it and writing about it a bit what's your sense of why he he began to change and move away from that do you think perhaps that he thought the players knew what he wanted from that system or was it a a case that as the season went on and he saw flaws in the team he figured that he didn't have the players to to correct those flaws via the uh, formation he was using and had to use different formations yeah i think the the impression that i have is that it was more of the latter, to be honest. I think, so like you say, we started this season and we look back now and it's May, it's nine months have gone and the whole season's gone. We've watched Arsenal, I don't know, 50, 60 times each. Um, and at this point, everyone's sort of like, oh, you never know what lineup he's going to put out. You never know what shape they're going to play in. But at the beginning of the season, it was, there was quite a degree of consistency that looking back over games, I was actually a little bit surprised to find, even though obviously we'd watched the games back in August and September and October. Um, and I think it, at some point we talked about that, or we've, we've all talked about that 22 game unbeaten run and the fact that we'd been winning a lot of games. 
Um, but during that spell, there were games against, I remember West Ham sticks out for me at home. Everton, Petr Cech was, was given man the match at home against Everton. Watford as well. All of these teams that you'd fancy us to beat at home. Not that they're givens, but we are the, the big favourites going into those matches. And we'd really ridden our luck in quite a few of them. Cardiff away, it happened as well, where it just felt like we were scoring our half chances and the opposition were having two or three chances on the break where they weren't quite getting a shot off or that kind of thing with the goalkeeper check and then Leno were pulling off really really good saves and I felt like we we reached November time we played Bournemouth away and it was the first time the in the league it was the first time that we changed formation uh, to a back three and to me it felt a lot like right let's find a quick fix because we're wide open at the back at the moment every time the team count the opposition team counterattacks every time we lose the ball we're getting caught out and yeah as i say it felt like a a bit of a, a plaster or a short-term fix but it's difficult in england and i think especially when you've not managed in england before there's no such thing as a quick fix if you're trying to do it in october or november because you're going to have to figure those problems out and go on until may in the end there isn't a winter break to go away for a week and have a training camp and mm. try and figure out what you want to do with the players that way. So I think personally, I think if he'd have stuck to his original plan, but tweaked it rather than changing the shape in a sort of, I don't want to say panicked, but a sort of, okay, this will, this will sort of do the, do the job for now. But in the end, it just sort of, slid away from him then from there I felt and now we've ended up in May not really knowing what he wants to do with the team mm. uh, Elliot I think in the second half of the season we have to point out that there were mitigating factors in terms of injuries to players who would have played a considerable part in many of the games that we played Hector Bellerin Rob Holding Danny Welbeck even if all of those weren't going to be absolute starters I think it's fair to say based on some of the performances that we've seen this season that they would have had a big role to play uh, and he was robbed of those players and there was no replacement for them in the January transfer window the only player he got in was was Dennis Suarez um a lightweight doesn't ring a bell yeah well <laughs> I don't know that too many of us remember much of of what he did um you know so there were factors within the, the second period of the season where I think he didn't quite have enough players to rotate the, mate, the way he might want, etc., etc. But as the season went on, he seemed to, be, to get kind of more predictable than he was at the start of the season where uh, I think, did you make this point on the on the post Europa League well, final podcast where was where it a good point? It was actually a good yes, point. So then, yeah, yes, I did. then it was you. Yeah. So it was about the, the lineup for the final in that we all could see what he was going to do. And the man who's been famous for his wild cards throughout the season, there was no joker in the pack. So it, it became easy for teams to work us out. Um, and the balance of the team, really shifted didn't it it was very top heavy we were so reliant on the strikers if they didn't do it nothing was happening yeah absolutely i think that the there were a couple of major factors that really influenced the decline in our performance as the season wore on and i think 
So there were a few things. First of all, the use of the back three. If you look at when he first started using it, that Bournemouth game, I think Lewis is right to bring it up. I I think he tried it in the Bournemouth game with an eye towards the subsequent Spurs game because we had the Derby at home that we wound up winning 4-2 where he uh, employed the back three again. But if you look at the way he used it most effectively, there were two really, I, I think, important features of it when it worked. Early in the season when he used it, starting around that time, he used it as a 3-4-2-1. He played one up top with a Wobie and Mkhitaryan on either side. So when we attacked, we had an extra player in attack. Um, and and that worked. And there was some balance. And I think that, he, ironically, even though we have two phenomenal strikers, I think sometimes our team has looked better and we've looked more balanced and more efficient, even attacking, when we played with one striker. Then if you look at it later in the season even when he was playing with the two up top with the back three, the key was that Ramsey was one of the two in the middle. So it was a three, four, one, two, but the two midfielders were either Shaka and Ramsey or Ganduzi and Ramsey or whoever it was. And Ramsey, as we know, likes to bomb forward, make the runs and be the extra attacker. So you'd have Aubameyang, Lacazette, Ozil and Ramsey, or earlier in the season, you'd have Aubameyang, the two wide forwards and one from the middle joining in like Ramsey again. So I think when we lost Ramsey, and we played the back three. The problem you had is neither Torreira nor Shaka nor Ganduzi, they didn't really join up with the attack. And it, it became really difficult to connect the midfield to the front two. And I thought Lacazette and Aubameyang looked increasingly cut adrift from their teammates and isolated. And I don't think that Ozil really worked in that formation. He would either drop deep to collect and there was too much distance, or he'd stay more advanced with the strikers and he was just kind of distributing out to the wing backs. It didn't really look fluid in attack. Now, I, I think what might have influenced Emery a little bit too is if you look at the Liverpool game, we lost 5-1 away. He used the back four in that game and we got slaughtered. And I think, you know, he he was definitely trying to balance how to get more defensive performances, better, more consistent defensive performances throughout the season. And obviously he never really solved that problem. When he had to play two strikers, I think he only felt he could do that with the back three. And we never got the balance right without Ramsey. So once Ramsey went out with that hamstring injury, we played the back three, we played the two strikers, they were increasingly isolated and it didn't work and I'm starting to repeat myself. But so yeah, I, I think the disappointment for me in the Europa League final though was one game where we very clearly used the back four late in the season, a very rare example of it, was against Chelsea in the home game. And I thought we played really well in that game. We won that game comfortably. I, we outnumbered Chelsea in midfield and... I was hopeful that he would do it. If you remember, it was the four diamond two mm. that we very rarely saw, but he used it against Chelsea in the home game. And I thought he just kind of got conservative and scared and went with his his back three because that had been his his go-to towards the end of the season in the Europa League. But I, I was disappointed not to see the back four in the final. Lewis, where, where do you draw the line or draw the line? Where do you find the balance between people who might say, okay, he did not have the players to implement his ideal tactical philosophy throughout the season mm -hmm. and the idea that maybe he wasn't able to coach or communicate what he wanted uh, to the players effectively. That's not uh, to make any sort of judgment on, on his English or anything like that, but uh, 
I know it's not like uh, just a case of moving pieces around the blackboard, but you know he's not asking players to do uh, anything terribly difficult, particularly in the four-two-three-one formation, where uh, which works for many teams and they can be much more defensively solid uh, th- than we are. We all know there are individuals in this team who are error-prone, who are. Uh, prone to lapses um, of concentration, who make mistakes which prove costly. We all accept that. But do you think there's something on him if he hasn't been able to form a kind of cohesive unit from the players he has? Or do we need to say, okay, this season was about coming in, he's judging the players as he's going. It's kind of like a, a learning on the job kind of thing. He's worked out some of them. He doesn't know what he can get from them. He knows what he's going to get from others. And next season is where we have to see something approaching a defined style and something really cohesive from Unai Emery. Yeah, I think I think at some on, on the one hand you have to draw that line somewhere. Obviously, um, you can't just you know go all in on Emery and and slate him and not mention the fact that there are certain players that might just throw a goal away and with it throw the game away. Yeah. But there were, I think, five teams in the Premier League that conceded more goals than Arsenal away from home this season. And there were, whatever anyone wants to say about Jacker or Mustafi, there's more than five teams that have worse individuals um, playing yeah. in goal or in defence or, or in midfield as well for them than Arsenal. So th- I think it really... It does show that the the line does definitely have to be drawn somewhere where that is. I, I think everybody has their own individual take on that. Personally, I like I say, I think the defensive record in particular was was terrible. This was more or less the same squad as last year with a new goalkeeper who had an excellent season with a new, expensive, robust, experienced centre back in Socrates. And with a midfielder that everybody, I think he went off the boil uh, halfway through the year, but a midfielder in Lucas Torreira that everybody, Arsenal fans can actually agree on something and say that he was a really, or is a really good signing. So I think to concede as many goals as last season with those three things, with those three players added to the squad, is it, it doesn't speak very well for, for Unai Emery. Um, personally, when it comes to the style of play and figuring out how or when he should be judged on implementing a style. I think that's one of the things that actually disappoints me is that if we'd have stuck with, I mean, we didn't reach the Champions League. It's obviously with the benefit of hindsight. We didn't reach the Champions League anyway in the end. Uh, Emery says that he's a coach working with the trust to build something and the trust and the patience from upstairs and Obviously, the the remit was to get back in the Champions League this year, which didn't happen. But he spoke in in those interviews towards the end of the season as if he doesn't need... He's obviously not been sacked. That He didn't have to get back in the Champions League this year to save his job. He wasn't trying to save his job, but trying to build towards something. And I think that's the frustrating thing is you didn't get the sense in the final few months that he was building towards something. It felt more like he was really trying to finish in the top four or win the Europa League but without a view of okay maybe I'm actually sacrificing something long term here 
in order to, that, that, you know, that we could have been building towards. Because now I don't know how we're going to line up next season and I'm not sure which players are going to fit or not aren't going to fit into whatever style he wants to play or what formation he wants to play and then which players we need to prioritise going forward in the transfer window as well, which areas really desperately need some additions and which ones don't because I think that's what you lack without that sort of consistent vision is you sort of just end up then I, I use the word muddling like we muddled through to the mm. end of the season when I wrote the article and that's what it felt like to me and it didn't feel like a manager that has this trust to build a project it felt like somebody who was just looking for a win on any given week towards the end of the campaign yeah it, it did it did really feel a bit like that and I, I think we'll um, we'll come back to transfers and players uh, and all those kind of things but Elliot I think the other, the other side of this, the defensive record obviously was was really poor. Um, it also, I think, had an impact on the way that we attacked. I don't think our attacking play was in any way cohesive. There were moments of uh, fantastic team play throughout the season, and you can think of a couple of the goals. The goal against Fulham, for example, was it the Aubameyang goal against mm-hmm. Leicester? That that mm-hmm. one goal of the season. There were times where it clicked and and where it came together. But more and more as the season went on, it became about individuals. It became about moments of quality. It became about Aubameyang and Lacazette dragging us through games and scoring goals and creating and scoring for each other. You know, um, again, a question of of balance is how do we or how does Emery do you think, address the defensive issues? Because, I, I mean, I don't think you can attack properly unless you have some kind of reasonable defensive platform, some kind of security at the base of your team that the players know is there and they feel secure with. Um, yeah. I, I don't think that's possible, regardless of the talent that you have. And it's not as if Arsenal are short of attacking talent in the team because there's Aubameyang, Lacazette, Ozil, Ramsey while he was fit, Mkhitaryan, Iwobi. You know, there are players in that team who who can do a lot at that end of the pitch. But more and more, it felt really disconnected. Yeah, I don't disagree. But, you know, look at what the two best teams in the league do well, Liverpool and City. How do they defend? They suppress shots. They don't give up chances. And I mean, sure, their individual defenders are much better. I mean, our defenders go to work in a clown car every day. Fine. Well, not Koscielny and maybe not Socrates. That's not fair. But, um, yeah, I mean, they have better defenders, but they suppress shots by putting the pressure on the opposition and keeping the ball and having the ball in very advanced positions. You know, the further the ball is away from your own goal, the less your defenders have to do and the less danger you're in. So you want us to play um, Arsene Wenger football, for example, possession-based football, you know. You know, let's not put words <laughs> in my mouth, potentially. I, I do think that, you know, and, and I talked to Ted Knutson on our podcast from StatsBomb today, and he said if you analyze any of the really successful teams, they attack well, and they, they do keep the ball, and they take a lot more shots than their opposition. The thing that really scares me about Emory football this season is the shot differential. We got outshot this season, and top top half of the table teams don't do that, let alone top four teams. Um, we got out big chanced. 7 a.m. kickoff did a great article about this, too. I think the thing that worries me is how poor we were at keeping possession this season and how little pressure we put, especially the smaller teams, under. 
Um, you know, not everybody loves the advanced metrics, the XG type stuff, but what it does show you when you look at the, the data is that we simply didn't put our opposition under enough pressure. And I think especially against the smaller teams, you know, if you look at the, the Palace game and the Brighton game, which are two that come to mind, obviously, but there were a lot of others throughout the season. If you have 65% possession and you take twice the shots your opposition does, they get shell-shocked. They drop deeper. They stop committing resources to the attack. They stop being able to spring the counters as effectively. And so I think what big clubs have to do is use their superior talent in the attacking end to keep the opposition under pressure. Now, I'll tell you something. Sometimes you see something with a manager that's really exciting, and then for certain reasons they can't stick with it. I would have loved to have seen a season like the one Emery was starting at the beginning of this season. 4-2-3-1, pressing more aggressively, one up top, two wide players coming in from the channels. I think if I if I had to be sympathetic to Emery, what I'd say is he tried to Wobie and Ozil in the wide positions. Didn't work. He tried to Wobie and Mkhitaryan in the wide positions. Worked a little bit, but Mkhitaryan got injured. Wobie didn't have the goal threat. He was very pointed about Wobie earlier in the season saying, I want him closer to goal. I want more end product. But whether you love Awobi or not, it's pretty clear he's not going to be a goal scorer. He tried, what was our big hobby horse that we were all angry about? Well, let's be honest, I was angry about. Uh, early in the season, Aubameyang out wide. Oh, why is he playing him out wide? Because he was trying to find wide players so he could play one up top and use the 4-2-3-1. And he couldn't find it. And so he wound up slowly but surely defaulting to two up top, which means he had to use the back three, which means we didn't hold possession and it all kind of fell apart. If I was going to have an optimistic viewpoint on Emery, it's that the kind of football he seemed to want to play when he first arrived could be really front-footed, interesting, pressing, attacking football. To do it, he's going to need wide players who can create that danger and score, and we don't have them right now unless you think a Reese Nelson or a Saka you know, or an Emil Smith-Rowe or someone like that is going to develop into it. So I, I just think, you know, I'm not going to say Arsene Wenger football, but more front-footed, better possession, higher shot-taking football takes the pressure off your defense. And when your defense is as low on talent as ours is to begin with, yeah. I, I don't think you can afford to be conceding the kind of shots and possession. Sure, I agree with you. But let me just stick with you a second. I mean, one of the things sure. that, that, you know, over the course of the season, we've got to know Unai Emery a little bit. You know, I don't think we can say we know him as well as Arsene Wenger. And again, I'm going to step back from it and be objective. You know, um, I've expressed my concerns about, you know, him on, on the Arscast Extra a few times and, and everything else. But, but with all those mitigating factors, um, one of the things that strikes me about Emery is that there is a sort of a streak of conservatism to him as a coach, which I think in some ways is transmitted to the players as well. I don't know if that's your sense of things too, or if that's something you, you've noticed with him, but it, it seems to me that the default position is to kind of, okay, let's, you know, when things are going badly or when there's a bit of pressure on, and it, it's it's curious in that it's mostly manifested itself in the games against smaller teams because our approach against the bigger teams has been to go kind of toe-to-toe with them, and for the most mm. part, that worked out. But when we face these smaller teams, it's more about, okay, what could go wrong when we play Brighton or West Ham or Southampton or Bournemouth rather than, how can we smash these fuckers? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I totally agree with that. I guess the question is, so look, candidly, I I haven't warmed to Emery. Um, I haven't warmed to the football, obviously. I think one thing you can just ask yourself is, did you like the football you watched? And I don't know that anybody can say, yes, consistently I liked the football I watched, um, you know, because it wasn't any better defensively and it certainly suffered an attack. But 
if I was going to try to have a viewpoint that was sympathetic to him, it would simply be based on the question of, did he wind up playing the football that he felt forced into by the personnel? Or is his football inherently more conservative? I'll admit to not having watched him a ton at PSG. Like, look, one thing that does scare me is, and, and maybe this is unfair, but when you look at that Barcelona tie at PSG, the conservatism in the way he approached that second leg, which granted the referees helped conspire to, to steal from him and diving and all that. But I do think he has a conservative streak. And I do think that his tendency when the pressure is on is to keep it tight instead of going forward. And I don't know that that will ever work for us or really at any big club long term. I think that is more of a mid-table mentality. You know, if you're a Sevilla, if you're mm. a Valencia, I can see under big pressure wanting to keep it tight. You can't do that at a club that has bigger ambitions. But uh, yeah, ultimately, I think that his inherent conservatism could be a problem for us. I would just be curious to say, is a pressing front-footed style of football something he wanted to implement? And between injuries and understanding the personnel he had at his disposal, felt that he couldn't properly implement it. Mm. I, I'm trying to be as generous as I can because sure. I have been critical of him. And I think in the cold light of day, when we look at the deficiencies of the squad, I would ask you – What's a lineup with the talent that we have that you could put on the pitch that would feel front-footed and possession-oriented, especially without Ramsey? And I, I struggle to come up with one personally. Yeah, no, that's fair. That's fair. I mean, the, like I said, there are there are mitigating factors. Uh, uh, Lewis, any quick thoughts on that before I move on to the next uh, little topic? No, I think one thing that actually that did strike me was I found it a little bit strange that um, that Reese Nelson, considering there were no natural wingers if you like in the squad that Reese Nelson was allowed to leave on loan on deadline day um yeah that would just that just hit me as a bit of a, an odd decision mm. well look I mean we'll uh, when we talk about style of play and when you say you don't really understand what what Emery is going to do or how he's going to do it next season I suppose the thing that we are going to have to take into account is what we do in the transfer market this summer and the kind of players that we bring in, I don't think we're going to have any idea really of how we're going to play until we see what, what kind of, what kind of business is, is being done. You know, there's talk of all kinds of uh, wide players and we're, we're going to come to those in a moment, but I want to talk to you uh, about Freddie Jumberg and the news this week that he is going to join Unai Emery's coaching staff next season uh, basically a job swap with with Steve Bold Steve Bold is going to go back and look after the under 23s uh, Steve Bold who had a fantastic uh, record at, at youth level before he came Arsene uh, became Arsene Wenger's assistant uh, you know I think he's somebody who gets a bit too much of a hard time for me Steve Bold because the people criticize him for all kinds of things but um for stuff he's not necessarily responsible for you know it's not his job to be the defensive coach it certainly wasn't under Arsene Wenger and it's certainly not under Unai Emery so when we're looking for reasons as to why our defense is not so great look at the men in charge rather than some of the other men on the training ground but the Freddie thing is really interesting to me Lewis because he's had a, a very effective season at the under 23 level the team has played well there's really exciting players there and you uh, you don't have to be a genius to work out that uh our focus on bringing academy players through is a cost-effective way of adding depth to the squad when you have a very limited transfer budget, which we appear to do. But it's also a good idea if you've got a young crop of players coming through to make 
uh, a pathway for them into your first team. But, you know, he's had a spell at under-18 level at the club. He went away. He was the assistant manager, I think, at Wolfsburg, wasn't he, with Andreas Jonker? Um, yeah, on his coaching stuff there. Yeah, um, he's come back then to the club. He's he's made progress at under twenty three level. I, I I look at this and I kind of think this could be something of a succession plan that we're looking at here. Freddie coming in, being a bridge between the under twenty threes and the first team squad, and he's not a guy who's so wedded to Unai Emery or Unai Emery staff that if and when a change is made, that Freddie becomes a casualty of that. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. If that were to happen at some stage next season or after next season, then Lundberg would sort of, I guess you would say, could be in the prime position to take over if there are no obvious big names out there who are in line for the job. Elliot, I mean, how how would you view the introduction of Freddie to the coaching staff? I mean, it feels, if if I'm right, if, if this is um, what I'm speculating on is right, and that there is a succession plan and we're beginning to see the start of it here. It speaks to a kind of long-term joined up thinking at the top of the club that we don't necessarily always associate with Arsenal. Yeah. I wouldn't rush to judgment that anything is long-term joined up thinking. (laughs) If I'm going to speculate about anything, it's that they may just be flailing around and accidentally find a solution. But I will say this. I watched the Raul and Vinay interview where they introduced the org chart the now famous org chart Mm. um, with all the pretty lines and columns. But one thing that they were very clear about, the academy feeds the first team. That was the center column of that whole chart. And I do wonder if putting Freddie right next to Emery is a way of saying, look, you're going to integrate these players better than you did in your first season. You're going to have a guy sitting next to you who knows them a little better than you do, who can talk to you about their strengths and weaknesses, but you're going to get them involved and we're going to use the academy better. Because if I am very critical of Emery about anything, and there are a lot of things that I feel very critical about him uh, related to, I don't think he did a very good job balancing the squad, especially early in the season. He used a lot of first-team players in the Europa League group stage. He had an opportunity to to blood some younger players there um, and didn't do it. I think throughout the summer, he was very conservative in the way he rotated and his reluctance to use those players. And you don't want them leaving. And, you know, God forbid you go after, you know, players that, that play in the positions that your youth players play in and you, you can't get your academy guys into the squad, you're going to lose them. And Raul and Vinay made it very clear that the academy is a priority and that it is part of that center column with the first team. So I don't know if Freddie is being groomed to ultimately succeed Emery, although that could be very exciting and maybe it works out. But I definitely think that his presence right next to Emery is a little angel on his shoulder, reminding him of the importance and the talent of this academy crop of players and finding better ways to get them integrated and giving Emery more firsthand information Mm. to understand how and when to use those players. Because that is clearly, from top down, a priority at the club now. Yeah. Uh, Lewis, that's a point you made in, in uh, in the article about how strong we were uh, in the Europa League in the opening stages. And in, in that sense, I've got some uh, sympathy for Emery because I think he had to sort of try and implement his authority on the squad to a certain extent because um, th- there were a lot of people looking at him going, what are you all about? And in the early stages, he's bringing key players and big players to the far farthest reaches of, of uh, Eastern Europe uh, to play in the Europa League. And I can sort of understand it from that point of view. But when I look ahead to next season, I look at the Europa League as, okay, it's a pain in the hole and I can't 
spare the Thursday Sunday schedule, and I'm really actually uh, as as hard as I'm trying to be magnanimous and and understanding of uh, of Emery here, I'm really quite fucked off with the fact that we're not playing in the Champions League next season because we had a brilliant opportunity to get there in the. Uh, in the Premier League and we completely and utterly fucked up a European final on top of that to rub salt into into that particular wound but here's my but on this is when I look at the Europa League next season I basically don't want to see first team in inverted commas players in those games uh, particularly uh, in the group stages I think as it goes on pragmatism takes over and you've got to play a bit of a stronger side but I look at it as a way for this club to actually give opportunities to young players who a really want them b really need them and see who if they don't get them are going to go somewhere else because they'll do what the likes of Jaden Sancho uh, has done and say no I'm not staying here I'll go somewhere else where maybe the wages aren't as good and maybe you know the the whatever it is but I'm going to play and they're going to give me chances that I'm not going to get here. Yeah, and I think I think that's firstly that's a really important point and it's going to then eventually have to be Premier League minutes but there's no way of knowing if these guys are ready to play in the Premier League. Like you've you've got a perfect way to test that basically with the Europa League group stage with the early rounds of the League Cup. Um we shouldn't be. I mean, this year we played Brentford and Blackpool in the in the League Cup, and I think Inketia didn't get on the on the pitch. He was on the bench as an unused sub in both games. I, that astounds me. And mm. if you think this guy has the talent to ever be, I mean, not not play every week, not necessarily a thirty goal a season striker, but if you think he's got a future at Arsenal, then not using him in games like this is he's not going to develop. You're not going to know if he actually can play in the Premier League. And like you say, eventually he's going to want to leave as well. I think that's probably the most exciting thing about Freddie Lundberg's new role is that there's a guy sitting on the bench who has worked with these players. He trusts them or knows which ones you can trust, but he also knows how to use them in the most effective way. You've not got a situation where maybe there's a chance for Joe Willock to play the game um, but he's going to play right midfield or he's going to play maybe a deeper role than he played for the under-23s this year. And Lundberg can sort of tap Embry on the shoulder or they can have that conversation and say, actually, if you put him here, this is where you're really going to get something out of him. And I think you've got so often with players coming through, we talk about it a lot, like so much of it is just down to luck. And yeah. if you have someone on the bench who already knows that player through and through, then that sort of the element of luck is is so much reduced. You've seen already this week, um, Ismail Benassa, who was at the, at the club a few years ago, is now playing for Empoli and being linked with a move to Napoli. Uh, Jeffrey and Adelaide apparently is being targeted by Lille and, uh, and they've been told to pay 20 million euros for him a year after we sold him for just less than 2 million euros. Mm. I, I think there are, there's obviously an element of luck and injuries and just opportunities in the first team that leads to these players leaving. But, and obviously as well, signing for Lille isn't proof that you could have had a successful future at Arsenal. But the fact that these players have gone and within one year of playing senior football are wanted by Lille or in the Champions League next year and Napoli as well. And yeah. we aren't. And those two players, just two examples, are being linked with those clubs. So, 
we've got Saka, we've got Smith Rowe, we've got Nelson, Nketiah, Javier Michi. Look, these guys, it's super unlikely that we're sitting here in a few years with the new class of 92 and they're all playing every single week. But if one or two of them can play every single week or if one or two of them can come into the Arsenal first team, then it's probably £50 million that you don't have to spend on a player of that quality five years down the line. Yeah, Elliot, the other thing about this is, uh, you know, I think uh, Lewis is right. We're we're not more than likely not going to have the new class of 92. Um, We all have kind of high hopes for our young players and we all know the names that we've, we've invested in down the years and they haven't quite made the grade and they've gone off and they've done other things. But... When we look at the academy, I think part of the, the the remit of the academy is to produce players who can play for us, but also produce players who can generate revenue for us. And mm-hmm. when you're selling a player who has never played a first-team game for you or has maybe come on as a sub in an EFL game uh, uh, and has got 13 minutes of first-team football for Arsenal, his value is limited. When a player has played in the Europa League for you, maybe he's played four or five group games for you and he's played two or three games in the League Cup and he's played a couple of FA Cup games in the early uh, stages and, and maybe he's got on the bench or come off the bench a couple of times in the Premier League and then you make a decision, you say, look, we've seen this, we don't think he's quite the right guy. What you have is a, a much more valuable asset when you go into the transfer market to sell that player and I think that's part of the thinking uh, when it comes to the Europa League next season it's not about let's put all these guys in because all these guys are going to be in the team it's because we can create a bit of buzz around some of these players because they have played some first team football for Arsenal even if they're not going to make it with us you have to make a market for them. I mean, yeah, I'm, well, I'm sorry. It. There was a great tweet going around the other day showing like the price Liverpool had gotten for some of their players. And there's guys like Solanke and Ibe and, you know, they're getting 18 million pounds for these guys and 28 million for Benteke. We just have to get better at selling, selling players we don't want to, like Alexis Sanchez and Aaron Ramsey, and players that, you know, maybe don't quite make it in our team. I mean, Carl Jenkinson is a great example of a guy who's just – Lived at Arsenal, rent free basically. And Was it last summer we we reportedly rejected like a twenty million pound bid for Callum Chambers. Yeah, I mean it's yeah. astonishing that the we're scared of our shadow. Look, I think I'd like to think so far in this podcast I've been pretty sanguine about Emery and and kind to him, but like deep down I am really aggravated with the guy. And there are things that I think alone in isolation are impossible to explain, like the lineup and performance against Palace, the Brighton game, um, but like. Here's a great example. Early in the season, we played Brentford at home in the League Cup. Okay, the only academy player who started was Smith Rowe, and the only other academy player in the entire team was Nketiah on the bench. The three subs in that game with a lead, Ramsey, Lacazette, Torreira, brought on mm. midweek against Brentford. Okay, so then we play at the weekend, and then we have to go all the way to carry a bag the next week, midweek. There's one academy player in the entire squad. It's Smith Rowe. He starts the three subs in that game, leading 3-0, Lacazette, Ozil, and Torreira. I, I ju- I'm sorry. Yeah, I just yeah, yeah. don't know how you can manage a big club and play Brentford at midweek, 
Premier League at the weekend, go to carry a bag in midweek, and you're not only using the whole first team essentially as starters, but your three subs are critical first team players, some of whom have a track record of picking up soft tissue injuries. Um, You know, if you want to look at our collapse down the road, you could do worse than saying, hey, we were doing double training sessions and running the most distance of any team in the Premier League for the first half of the season and, and not using the academy players. And lo and behold, we ran out of steam. So I'm not trying to pile on, but... His reluctance, and I get it, he's new, he's trying to win every game, we were on this undefeated streak, but he made very bad choices early in the season about incorporating those young players. It hurt the team in the immediate term, and I think long term it could be a problem well. Well, hang on a second. It didn't really hurt us in the immediate term because, you know, uh, the Brentford well, game, we won 3-1. We came into that game off the back of 1-2-3-4-5 well, wins, I mean the and we won then. Yeah. We won the next four fixtures, uh, or five Sorry. out of the next six fixtures, so... Let me let me just say by immediate term what I mean is this season immediate oh, okay. term meaning that okay. the accumulation of minutes on the first team players, you know I can't prove that no one can prove that had he rotated in those games it may have made no difference, um, so I, I I fully appreciate I'm speculating but I didn't mean mm. in the immediate term meaning that game I meant the immediate term this season plus the future of what happens with our academy players because because if I'm you know Enkedia uh, uh, and I look at how I was used this season I think I would have some real questions now. There's also the issue of then, well, fine, if we wanted to sell him, we didn't make a market for him either. Well, there's like there's this talk, and I think it's very fair, about a culture change at the club. And, you know, you play Ozil or Lacazette or Ramsey or you bring him off the bench in at Carabag or against Brentford in the Cup. And you're, it does send this message that no game is too small for anyone. But there's got to be a balance. There's got to be – you don't have to play – every single one of them in those games. If you, you know, yeah. play Ramsey, play Lacazette and leave Aubameyang and Ozil at home if you want. You, But you can't just pick the entire team and no academy players. And I think that's just yeah. where maybe Emery wanted to get a message across and it just went too far the other way. Mm. Yeah, but can, can I make a point about that too? I mean, look, these are experienced. This is not a team of 22-year-olds who need to learn what it means to be a professional. These are 28, 29, 30-year-olds they're looking at each other on the flight to carry a bag, whispering like, why are we on this plane? What are we doing? You, you know what I mean? Like these these players know at big clubs, they don't play these I games. I think that's exactly the culture that that he made, he wanted to change. Yeah. You're, nobody it just, nobody here guess, is too important. It just, to me, that just feels like such a mid-table culture. Like at big <laughs> clubs, your best players get those games off. That's not because yeah. they're pampered. That's because it's smart top level management for a yeah, big club. Yeah, but like, hang on, Elliot. I think the thing, yeah. the, the the point is, is that at Arsenal they were pampered. They were, that, of course. That's, of course that's course the they difference. Were. It's not a, a, a and the the onus then on those players is to produce week in week out because they're being given this time off and Emery's come into a club off the back of a season where those players are basically fucking down tools so I I, I sort of have a little bit more understanding uh, of why he did what he did early in the season um, I, can I, I ask can, a question though yeah like, go on can't, can't you reverse the culture of pampering with things like more intense training sessions or if you didn't play well you don't get to start the next game like you that- can I think that, that's actually how I would have done it. And we're all sitting here with hindsight and it's easy to say this stuff, but how I would have liked to have seen it done, let's say, is take Ramsey to Karabag, take Aubameyang to Karabag, leave Ozil at home. And I think then the message you're sending is you're playing on Sunday and if you don't play well, then you're going to you're going to Karabag, you're, you're playing the next League Cup game. And that's, where I, that's what I mean, I think, when I say that balance needs to be found. Fair Fine, enough. take Jacker and leave Torreira at home, but send Torreira the message that 
if he doesn't play well at the weekend, he's going to be the one going out to Eastern Europe or the one playing at home against Blackpool next time out. Mm. Well, I mean, I think he did. He did try to address certain issues within the team. He did try and address certain issues with, with certain players. There were disciplinary problems. Oh, certain players, Mesut Ozil is who I'm talking about here. There were issues behind the scenes because he didn't give him the leeway that Arsene Wenger gave him. Um, uh, and I think when you're coming into a new club, when you're faced with, um, with a guy who... Uh, I won't say feels like he can do what he wants, but was certainly allowed to do more or less what he wanted when he wanted. Yeah, that's a difficult thing to deal with when you're trying to create a dressing room that has um, sort of like a meritocracy, right? Just because you earn the most money doesn't mean you get treated any better than anybody else. It doesn't mean you've got any less responsibility than anyone else. So, you know, from that point of view, I do have sympathy. And I also think maybe as well that there wasn't quite the connection between uh, you know the, the the youth setup because um, Per Mertesacker had just taken over. I think maybe things are a little bit more cohesive this year when we talk about. I, I agree with your point, Elliot, about not using uh, the, the way he didn't use young players in some of those uh, early games. I just wonder if he didn't quite know what he had, um, and maybe if the current crop that we have weren't quite ready, um, and they, they seem much more ready this time around. Okay, I may have gotten too stuck in there. Do okay, don't worry, don't worry. That's <laughs> I fine. I do that sometimes. If I can just very quickly, I also think he possibly lost some authority with the Mesa situation because we went through Christmas and January, and he was completely out of the team. We had that horrible game at West Ham, for example. Mm. We we played poorly at Brighton, and he was the one hooked at halftime. And then when it felt like we were in trouble, like big trouble of being knocked out of the Europa League against Barté and Wren, suddenly he was back in starting those games. And it felt, I, I, there was just a part of me that thought like, if you're going to throw him out of the team completely, yeah. it just looks a little bit weak then if we you know, if we lose to Barté Borisov, then I think there are questions about if Unai Emery is going to be sacked or not, probably. Yeah. And it's almost like he needed to win that game, so he brought Ozil back in. You know what it reminds me of? Lewis, do, do you guys remember the Liverpool game where Alexis was disciplined by starting from the bench? Yeah. Um, under, and then it went so badly that Arsene brought him on at halftime? Yeah. And it's like, nah, you've lost it there. That's it, right? You tried to send this message that we can play without you and everyone has to be part of the team, but the minute it started to go wrong, you fell back on him. I, I, yeah, and, I, I agree. I, I do wonder if there was some maybe some kind of top-level discussion about how to handle that situation. Maybe yeah. maybe so, because, you know, Emery seemed... Do you remember the David Ornstein story in, in January, um, which was David Ornstein on the BBC basically saying that Unai Emery has told Mesut Ozil that he would be better off finding another club. You can't be any more um, equivocal than that. Um, and then, of and course, stayed and started playing loads of games again. Yeah, exactly. But you know, it, to me, it's always felt like a fairly uneasy truce, um, you know, between the between the two guys. And look, it's a difficult situation for any coach. So I don't know. I don't know where to stand on on that one in particular. But you need to get the Turkish lip readers on the pod. Yeah, we do need some Turkish <laughs> lip readers. Anybody out there who can do that, uh, please, please get in touch. 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. It's a brand new year, and what better time to get going with that online store you've been thinking of? Those I was there when Arsenal actually scored a goal t-shirts would fly off the shelves right now. And to get yourself up and running, you need Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way through to the did we hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and sell more with less effort with thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Sign up for a $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash arsblog, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash arsblog now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash arsblog. Okay, I want to talk a bit about transfers. And (laughs) you know what was interesting to me? For years, for years, the the call from Arsenal fans is, you know what? If we could just get two or three players, then next season could be the season. It could be the one. All we need is two or three players. And I look at this squad now and I think... Now, if we could just keep two or three of the good players <laughs> and then just replace every other fucker, we might have a chance. Those two or three players that we wanted to sign all those years. Yeah. We just lost everybody else in the process. Yeah, it's just, it's crazy. Elliot, it's going to be a mental summer. I think it's going to be absolutely crazy in terms of transfer news. Quite how much happens in the transfer market is another thing. But, you know, I wrote on, on Arsblog this week, uh, uh, you know, how, how we're going to rebuild or what we need to do to rebuild, you know, from goalkeeper, defense, midfield, attacking midfield and forwards. You can go on to arsblog.com and read those articles if you haven't already. And just writing it down was astonishing to me about how many players realistically could go, how many players we need to bring in. You could make a good case for pretty much all the squad to move on if you really wanted to. Not all, but nearly all. You could say, yeah, we could go a different direction from him. Uh, I'd be fine with just about any of them. I mean, I think the thing that people are going to have questions about is, should you sell Lacazette or Aubameyang no, if a real offer comes no, in? No, 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 no. Well, no. I I mean, look, they are the only fun thing about the squad, but like this goes back to it, right? Like I'm sure Liverpool fans were sad to see Coutinho go. I'm sure they loved him, but my God, what a great move. You know, I'm sure Dortmund fans were sorry to see Dembele go, but for a hundred million euros, they contended for the Bundesliga title. Lewis, I'm sure you're, you're all too well aware of how close they came. 
Um, yeah, let's not talk about that. <laughs> the, the less said, the better. But I mean, these are the moves that you have to make if you're going to get yourself out of a, a problem with the squad. And like, yeah, would I love to sell Mustafi for fifty million and Shaka for seventy million and and Mkhitaryan for forty million? I would, but no, no one's buying at those prices. No, but if they someone's going to buy... pay you a hundred million pounds yeah. for Aubameyang, you know, from China. Well, I don't think or... that's. I don't think that's. I don't think that's realistic either. Oh, okay, Genuinely, fair. I don't. So, all right, so then, then look. I mean, obviously, there's a price for everything. I mean, sure. you don't sell. I'd be fine with Shaka leaving. You don't sell him for ten million. You don't sell Aubameyang for thirty million. I, I think it has to be at the right price. I do think that we may be overestimating how much will get done because realistically, you know, the the transfer window is shorter. We don't have a technical director in. I don't know how joined up the thinking is, and it's very hard to turn over that much of the squad in one window. So I'll be curious to see what happens. This is where I'm a little nervous because. Where I don't know if I trust Emery is what type of player he wants to go for. I mean, I, I am one of the people that thinks links with like Ryan Frazier and Alberto Moreno and Mounier. <sighs> like, those are all very worrying rumors for me of the club repeating mistakes and going in the wrong direction. Yeah. So that that would be the fear for me. I think everybody knows we need a center back, we need a left back, we need an attacking midfielder, and we need a wide forward. Are we going to get all of those? Well, we're going to need to sell some players if we're going to get anything reasonable in those positions. And you know, the only other thing I'd say, Andrew, is like, if you have Aubameyang and Lacazette, but you really feel that the best football is played in a 4-3-3 or 4-2-3-1, that means that one of Lacazette or Aubameyang are on the bench every game in an ideal world. Can you afford to have a 70 million pound asset every game who's not on the pitch but is instead on the bench? Yeah. Or I, can you sell that and turn it into something I, that helps I, you build I, a more balanced I squad? I see the logic. I absolutely see the logic of it. I just feel... But still no. <laughs> but st I feel sometimes we get a bit too caught up. Look, I, I, I completely agree and I do think we need to sell better and I think um, that that is a big issue for for the club. Um, if, the, if a huge offer came in for one of them, You've got to be tempted. I, I do understand that. And for me, if it were for anyone, I'd prefer it were for Lacazette because I think Lacazette Agreed. is probably a more replaceable player than Aubameyang, who is, despite his misses, you know, a guy who gets you 30 goals a season. There aren't too many of those guys around. So it would be it would be Lacazette. I would prefer to keep them. Lewis, my, my, my sort of concern, I do have some concerns about the kind of players that we've been linked with. I mean, just when you think back to, you know, let's go back to 2013, 2014. Um, we bring in Mesut Ozil. We're linked with Alexis Sanchez. Who else are we linked with? Luis Suarez, uh, Gonzalo Higuain, Karim Benzema, N'Golo Kante, Julian Draxler, Jamie Vardy, uh, uh, Mares. you know, these kind of level names. And I'm looking through the players that we've been linked with over the last little while. Ryan Fraser. I'm sorry if you want to wave his flag with all his assists in the one season that he got more assists than you know some other people. By all means, wave that flag. I'm still not going to get excited by Ryan Fraser. Uh, Nkunku, Anderson and, and Preet from Sampdoria, Saliba, young Frenchman, um, Claude Maurice, Mounier, Carrasco. You know, this is the level of player that we're, we're being linked with now. It has changed quite considerably because of where we are and because of our, our I guess, our European fortunes to a large extent. Yeah, and the money that we've got as well. Yeah, of course, yeah. Especially when Mesut Ozil was eating up a healthy chunk, let's say, of the, the wage bill too, then we're not going to be able to even afford those players, let alone 
convinced them to come to us. So, you know, we haven't got the, the Champions League, we haven't got the title ambitions and we haven't got the money to sway anyone towards us, those sort of big names. So the the club, I think, has probably two options. And one of them, I think, is like you mentioned names and there's both of them. One of them is the Saliba and Claude Maurice route and go that way and go with kids players who are going to improve in two or three years they're going to be in the first team maybe in four or five years you're going to sell them for a lot of money or you're going to keep them and they're going to be great um and those players shouldn't in theory cost as much like i guess you're talking about transfers like Gendouzi last summer um and the the other part they can go down is alberto moreno and ryan fraser and players that sort of you know their level and they're not really going to smash that ceiling, but you might be able to rely on them. And I think personally, I I would pick the first one now. Yeah, I think that, that second road we've gone down in the last three or, four, or three years, two or three years, we've signed Socrates, we've signed Lichsteiner for free, we've signed Lacazette and Aubameyang, Mkhitaryan instead of taking the, the 30 million we probably could have got for Alexis Sanchez. And where's it got us? Um, yeah. We're not in the Champions League anymore. I think that, I think even you could argue that Unai Emery's appointment was a, was a, an idea that, okay, two or three years, this team's built for the next two or three years. And that's all we've got to get back in the Champions League. So let's do it. Um, for me personally, I, I just don't find it as as enticing. I think it's um, I think it's a lot more likely or a lot closer to sort of accepting our level rather than trying to do something exciting and and break out of that. And look, it's really really hard to do what Liverpool have done and what Tottenham have done. And I, God, I hate saying that so much, but. <laughs> This is sort of the the way to go. If you've not got money that Man City and Chelsea and Man United have got, and we haven't, then how do you sign an Allison or a Virgil Van Dijk? Well, you have to sell a Coutinho to get the money to sign them. Yeah. So you you do have to you have to scout, or not only scout, but all of the everything that goes into recruitment. You have to recruit really really smart. You have to get those players before they're at Liverpool, before they're at Man United. Look at Liverpool, where they signed, I think um, you mentioned it the other day, but um, where Liverpool signed their Champions League players from and half the teams from Southampton and Hoffenheim and Sunderland, if you wait until they're playing for other Champions League clubs, even not in England, if you wait until they, they've had their breakthrough at Lyon or Lille or at Leverkusen, then they're already beyond what we can afford. They're, and we're going to be competing with clubs. You take it, people, people are falling in love with Kai Havertz at, at Bayer Leverkusen. He's already way beyond the budget that Arsenal are going to have. And if he's for sale, if any sort of bid is going to tempt them into a sale this year, then it, he's going to go to a Bayern Munich, a Real Madrid. You can't, you can't get those players at that point. So I think the way to go forward, the only way that Arsenal are going to have world-class players right now is if they sign them two or three years before the world knows how good they're going to be. Mm-hmm. And mm. unfortunately, there is a taboo around selling players, but look at what Liverpool have done by selling Suarez and then by selling Coutinho and half of this Tottenham team was bought almost with Gareth Bale's money. If we have a world-class player and someone's 
going to bid 150 million for them and we can sign three or four players that could become that player again, then at some point you have to do it. And I think this sort of, like I say, the taboo around selling players, it's about time that it sort of disappeared, to be honest, because I don't think Arsenal are going to be anywhere close to the knockout stages of the Champions League or anywhere close to competing for a Premier League title before they probably end up selling two or three players that people are going to be upset to see leave. Mm, a, a couple of things on that. I mean, I don't think there is a player in the squad who would provide that kind of transformative money. But, you know, as a general no. rule, we do have to we do have to um, get better at that. And I think we also have to get better. We talk about this idea of selling our, our, our top players and maybe having to sacrifice in order to get money to reinvest and to rebuild. I get that completely. I also think we need to be far, far better at selling our chaff and selling the players that we don't mm-hmm. want. Because when you look at some of the prices that we got, I mean, how how is it that we sold Wojciech Szczesny for £10 million? How does that happen in a world when Szczesny was keeping Alan and out of the fucking Roma side for two years, you know, and we sell him for ten million pounds, and Liverpool spent sixty on the guy who couldn't get in the fucking team ahead of him. So, you know, there's there's other ways that we can raise that revenue. Elliot, the the, the other thing that that comes to mind is that okay, Liverpool have done it, and Tottenham have done it as much as that might stick in our craw, but they've done it with the right coach. I think um, in, in both cases, the coach has been given time to um, to rebuild the squad and to reinvest that money because uh, he he is, as far as uh, everyone can see, the right guy. You know, Tottenham have gone through, I don't know, uh, 50, 60 years of, of rubbish coaches uh, to get to Pochettino and Liverpool, of course, um, went through some duds as well before they came to Jurgen Klopp. And that's a thing that occurs to me about uh, about our head coach, but also our setup at this moment in time, is that I feel like the decisions that we make, and we, we, we come back to the lack of a technical director, and maybe Edu is behind the scenes advising on the, the, the path forward for this football club before he actually joins. But it feels to me like the decisions that we make should be more made above Unai Emery mm-hmm. and not necessarily by Unai Emery. It's not to say he can't have or shouldn't have some input into that. But, uh, you know, if we go out this summer and buy uh, a bunch of Unai Emery players and it doesn't work out, then you're kind of locked into him and your rebuild job uh, becomes you've got to tear it all down again. You know what I mean? Yeah, indeed doesn't make any sense. I mean, look, Unai Emery has one more year on his contract and one year option, right? So if if he drives the 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 uh, recruitment policy this summer, then you're essentially saying we're at least picking up that option and beyond because look, I don't want to spoil anybody spoil the mystery for anybody, but we're probably not winning the Premier League next season. Mm-hmm. Um and we're not in the Champions League, so QED, we're not winning the Champions League um next season either. So What's the time horizon for Arsenal to be really good again? It's probably not next season. We should be recruiting right now with an eye towards having a squad and creating assets and doing the things necessary for Arsenal to realistically say we could win a Premier League and we're in the CL and maybe even trying to get to the the latter stages of the CL three, four seasons from now. So that's where the recruitment has to have an eye towards. And the idea that we can say definitively Emery will be here then, I, I think that's a stretch. It wouldn't surprise me if Emery... You know, and again, I'm not rooting for this, but but if he went middle of next season, I wouldn't say, holy cow, I'm shocked. 
Um, you know, if if he starts next season like he finished this one. Again, not rooting for it, just saying it could happen. So, no, I, I think it has to come from above that. The thing that scares me is, do you feel totally confident that Raul has the right approach to recruitment squad building? We don't have a technical director in place yet. Does that mean Edu hasn't been, you know, on the phone, given his opinion, talking about how he'd like to do it? No, probably not. Realistically, people talk. Sven is obviously gone, so you know, whatever targets he was looking at, because I can't imagine he was working one or two months in advance. The Raul and Vinay interview, Raul said, you know, if you don't know what you're planning for next summer, a year before, you're already behind. So I'm guessing Sven was working towards this summer before he left. So it's hard to understand where the direction is going to come from and who has the insight to drive us there. And that's what's really a little bit scary for me. So I guess, yes, I do think it has to come from above Emery. I'm not sure who that person is, though, that I would say I feel really good about putting it in their hands. I mean, behind the scenes, there's Stats DNA, and it's sort of a dirty name to some people in Arsenal supporting world, but they are very highly regarded. I mean, you don't have to look very far to see people falling over themselves to praise the Stats people at Liverpool and how important they were in building what Liverpool has. And the people that praise that group have similar things to say I mentioned on our podcast, Ted Knutson, who owns StatsBomb, has very good things to say about the Stats DNA people. Have they been able to be as influential as they could be in the club? I don't know. But somewhere behind the scenes and above Emery, there has to be someone who can set that course not to just be better next season, but with a target that says three or four seasons from now, our plan is to have a squad based around this philosophy that can challenge for the league and and get to the latter stages mm. of the CL. And, you know, I, I mean, I don't know who that figure is right now. I think that's really where the philosophy comes into it as well, because and when you talk about not having an idea what the identity, the style of play on the pitch is, because you get different, different players play on the wings, different players play a fullback in central midfield for Liverpool and Man City because they don't play the same football as each other. And if you want to go to an extreme from there, then Atletico Madrid, none of Man City's players could play in midfield for Atletico Madrid because of what the manager demands. And this is where whatever it is, if it's all about possession or all about the pressing or you know, ideally nothing is all about one of those things, or we do want to go back to a George Graham style with like a Simeone style coach, you have to decide who your targets are based on how you're going to play as well. Because there's yeah. no point building an Unai Emery team. And then if we do finish outside the Champions League places again next year and they don't keep him in charge, then go and get in a manager who has completely different ideas of how to play the game. Because yeah. then you're going to have to build the team all over again. No, I completely agree. And that's it's you know where I think there's a, an interesting layer to this summer is will we see transfer business that doesn't just fill the gaps that we have in the squad but whether it will define the style or the footballing philosophy of the club going forward and maybe that is something that's uh, been on the phone look guys I've kept you too long also I should point out that you know Raul and Vinay this is their first season with you know uh, full authority to do what they're going to do so I'm going to step back and give them time to do it and we can make a judgment in August Uh, Stat DNA has got a long way to go to convince me it's not just football's Windows 95 but (laughs) we'll see we'll see where we are in August Um, uh, Elliot, thank you very much indeed for your time. Really appreciate it. Uh, thanks for asking me. And Lewis, thank you very much. Thanks for the invitation.
Thank you very much indeed to the guys. You can follow them on Twitter if you like. Lewis is at LG Ambrose, at LG Ambrose. And Elliot, of course, is at Yankee Gunner, at Yankee Gunner. And you'll find him as well uh, doing other podcast stuff on the Arsenal Vision podcast, of course, as many of you will already know. Right. I think we're going to leave it there because there isn't a great deal else to talk about. There's no match to preview and any transfer speculation that happens between now and over the weekend. James and I, we can discuss it on the Arsecast Extra, which, of course, will be with you on Monday as usual. Remember, if you like the show, you want to give us a a five-star rating and review on iTunes, that would be just swell. If you're not already a Patreon member, an Arsebug member on Patreon, you get access to this podcast ad-free, as well as lots of extra bonus podcasts and articles, and it helps support the site. So if you want to sign up, that would be great. Patreon.com forward slash Arsebug if you want to sign up. It costs a fiver a month. And we really do appreciate everybody who lends their support in that way. But, of course, we appreciate all of you and thank all of you very, very much indeed for listening, for being with us episode after episode. Stick with us for what I think is going to be a bit of a summer. Uh, Who knows where the uh, podcasts and transfer rumors will take us, probably into some kind of spiral of madness. But you know what? We'll all be in it together. Catch you on the Arsecast Extra on Monday. Until then, have yourselves a great weekend. Cheers. Bye-bye. Arsenal Football Club today announced the signing of Jock Chisthump from lower league side Bletchley Park United for a record fee of 17 guineas, six and threepence. It's a landmark signing, as noted by chairman Sir Chips Keswick. We believe this exciting young talent's got what it takes to turn the entire team around. Also, season ticket renewals are now due. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.